Today we're going to be focusing on verses uh, 9, 10, and 11, but I'm going to read through uh, from verse 3 onwards to uh, remind you of the context we're in. So starting in verse 3 in Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you were all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is God's word. So as we get back into uh, Philippians today, uh, you'll notice that for most of your Bibles, verses 9, 10, and 11 comes at the end of a paragraph. And the first part, the majority of that paragraph, is what we covered last week in verses 3 to 8. And what we covered last week in summary was that Paul was thankful about what God was doing by the power of the gospel. That was what we talked about last week, specifically what God had done to save the people in Philippi, which was a Roman colony in northern Greece. God had plucked those people out of spiritual darkness, which was provided through the light of Christ, and he not only saved those people, but he made them passionate and excited about the gospel. So they weren't just excited that they got saved, they wanted other people to be saved, and so they partnered with Paul in ministry. That's why he calls them a partnership in the gospel and partakers with Paul of grace. These people supported him financially, but they also supported him through their prayers, and they even supported him by their own ministries, by saying that they were proud of him even though he was imprisoned because they knew he was imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. They loved Paul and were friends with Paul. And even though Paul is thankful for the Philippians' attitude towards him, he's most thankful to God. That was the real main emphasis of last week. He's most thankful for God because God saved the Philippians. And God motivated and spiritually energized the Philippians to partake in the gospel. And the reason that that all happened is because that is what God does with those he saves. He not only saves them from the punishment of sin, but he also saves them from the power of sin. They become new living people alive in Christ. And those people not only accept the gospel, but they're excited about the gospel because God did that in his people. That's why verse 6, the main point from last week was Paul saying, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Everyone saved by Christ has assurance in Christ. 
that he hasn't just saved them and then will release them, but that he will keep them, his children, all the way until he returns again. And that idea is going to be really important as we get into the second part of the prayer. Paul was originally talking about his thankfulness to God for them, and now he's going to talk about what he hopes in the future for them. And in a sentence, what Paul hopes for them is that they would grow. That as they love God, they would continue to grow to look more like God, that they would grow in godliness. And the reason Paul's praying for that is because growth is inseparable from the gospel. If you believe in the gospel, then you also believe that you will grow. And all over the Bible, um, this is explained. For example, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, which is another letter of Paul, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So that's just the gospel. You're saved by grace through faith, not because of you, but because of what Christ did for you. And then the very next verse after that, Paul says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So Paul thinks about the gospel that saves you, and then he immediately moves on to the gospel that will continue to sanctify you. You will grow if you believe the gospel. Another text that supports this is Titus chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, where Paul explains, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And then right after that, he says, Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. When God's grace saves our lives, it also trains us to live differently. And this is going to be a major emphasis of Paul in Philippians as well. For example, in this chapter, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Because Paul loves the gospel, and because he knows they love the gospel, he wants them to become more and more the kind of people the gospel calls them to be. Worthy representatives who have the character of God as they believe the message of God. And that's really what we're getting into with Paul's request for verses 9 and 10 and 11. And you could really break it down in three ways. And these aren't separate things. This is going to be like a case that's, that's kind of building. The first thing Paul's going to explain is how you should grow. If you had to work on like one quality that you can grow in, Paul's going to say what that quality should be. That's the first thing. And the second thing he's going to explain is why you should grow. What's the motivation? Why does it matter that you grow? And then the third part is Paul's going to explain how can you be sure that you'll grow? Is this kind of growth really possible? And you really need to make sure when we get to that third point that you're ready to hear it because that's really where everything in these three verses, but one sentence, it's all driving towards that third point that's going to be made in verse 11. But obviously, before we get there, we need to see how Paul is, is getting to that. And he starts with this first point, which is how 
you should grow. The first thing he talks about is how you should grow, and that starts in verse 9. So if you look at your Bibles, Paul prays this in verse 9. He prays, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. When Paul thinks about growth, Paul thinks about love. Love is the chief quality of the Christian life. It's probably not super surprising. We could go all over the Bible. I bet you could tell me many verses throughout the Bible that talk about how love is the most important thing. 1 Corinthians 13, if I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Jesus said multiple times in his ministry that love is the fulfillment of the law. And Paul mentioned that later in Galatians. Love is the most important thing. However, even though there's lots of places Paul talks about love, this is a very fascinating verse by itself. And you can actually notice that if you observe a couple of things quickly. The first thing um, that you can notice here is that Paul doesn't say who to love. He doesn't, he doesn't say that your love for God may abound, and he doesn't say that your love for others may abound. He just says your love. That's it. But he doesn't qualify it. And the idea seems to be that Paul is just praying that they would be characterized by love in everything and anything they do, that love should affect every part of their life. That's the first thing. And then the second thing that you might observe is that he defines the love. He doesn't just say love. He actually follows through by explaining two words that define what kind of love he's talking about. It's kind of like in 1 Corinthians 13, that really famous passage where Paul says, love is this, love is this, love is not this, love is not this. He does something similar with just two words. Your love should have knowledge and your love should have all discernment. The first word is knowledge. And knowledge, you might think you know what that word is, but it's a really deep word for knowledge. The normal word is the word gnosis, this is the word epignosis. It's a deeper word than regular knowledge, which emphasizes it's not just about information. One commentator wrote, it's talking about advanced knowledge, a full appreciation of real meaning, which only comes as a result of experience and instruction. And the experience he's, not he's talking about isn't like going into the world and, and having experiences He's talking about the experience of an active relationship with God. The God who created reality is telling you to view love in reality, which is just a complicated way maybe of saying love defined by God. Love with knowledge is love that is defined by God as he sees it with his perfect insight which is not just information, that's personal. It's the experience of love through a relationship with the God who is love. But the other thing he adds is that you need all discernment. All discernment. The word discernment actually shows up another time in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14, where the author there says, discernment means being trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil, which means discernment has this idea of moral choices that happen in life. 
it's not super far off from the idea of wisdom. It's not only knowing good and evil, but choosing between good things and bad things. It's knowledge applied. The idea here is that love is not love unless it's connected with God's knowledge and is it being expressed the right way in the right place at the right time. Or another way you could say it is this. Gospel believers are people who grow in the quality of their love. They don't just have love, but they're always trying to love more greatly and more deeply and more profoundly. When you believe the gospel, you receive a love that is based on God's definition. Your heart is changed by it. More areas of your life are affected by it. And more of your motives become controlled by it. And that's what Paul means when he says your love needs to abound more and more. You need a greater and better view of love that shapes more and more of your life. And Paul is praying that not just the Philippians, but that all believers would be characterized by that kind of love. That's how you grow. And then he immediately moves on in the next verse to the reasons why you should grow. You should be motivated to grow in this way. And the motivation is in verse 10, where Paul says, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That first word that's there, you may approve what is excellent. The word approve means to test or examine something. It's like taking something into a lab to dissect it. Or specifically, it's the word used if you had a coin and you wanted to figure out if it was genuine or not. And if you heard coin, I know Elliot's ears perked up. So if you want to know how to test a coin, talk to him. That's even written in my notes, but then you actually like perked up too. That was perfect. The idea is that you are supposed to live your life testing something. And what you're supposed to test is what is excellent. Or literally, what things matter and what things don't matter. What things are better than other things. Or as a lot of people appropriately translate it, you're supposed to go out and test what is best. You're supposed to test what is best. The reason you need Christian love more and more is so you can maximize your life for Christ. Not just making good decisions versus bad decisions, but making better decisions and best decisions. Maximizing your decisions for Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a really famous pastor, once said, the whole art of life, I sometimes think, is the art of knowing what to leave out, what to ignore, and what to put to one side. Super appropriate. And in a very similar vein, a very famous missionary named uh, William Carey, he said this. He said, I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid in succeeding in things that don't matter. Really amazing, wise point. The reason we need to grow in love is because people who know God's love need that love to affect their decision-making. They need to make as good of a decision in as many areas as they can, which means making more and more of your decisions about God. And the reason that's necessary is because Christians are people who want to look more and more like Christ because one day he's coming back. 
one day he's coming back. That's what he says. We want to look pure and blameless on the day of Christ. Christ is coming again. And that fact should change the way we live. It should change how we want to honor and please him. Specifically, we should want to be people who are pure, which means sincere, without hidden motives. It's this idea of if you washed your clothes in the ancient world, the only way you'd figure out if they were clean, you didn't have a washing machine that made it like a fancy noise, and then you're like, it's done, it's clean, and you don't assume it. What you did was you washed your clothes, and then you held it up into the light, and in the light of the sun, you could see if it had any stains or not. You could see through it if it was clean. Or another example that they gave was um, pottery was incredibly popular in the ancient world, and the best pottery was very thin. That's how you knew it was good. And when things are thin, they can break easily. And if you were someone who did pottery and you weren't very honest, what would happen is sometimes you'd break a pot, and then what you would do is, instead of starting over, is you'd get this kind of wax, and you'd seal in the cracks and put it together, and then you couldn't tell that you were actually being sold a pot that was broken and cracked. But you could actually tell if you held up the pot to the sun. And if you held it up to the sun, you could see the faint marks of the wax sealant and you would know that something is a fake. And that is a very good picture of what Christ is going to be looking at the day he returns. He's gonna hold our lives up to the light and determine if they were pure, not just in what you did, but what you desired to do. The light of Christ in his return is going to look right through you, right into your heart, and is going to see your motives in the decisions you made. That's what he's talking about, having a pure life to present to Christ. And yet, even though he's talking about motives, the next word, blameless, that word does have to do with actions, actually. It's this idea of uh, not putting something in another person's way, or not allowing someone to trip on something and therefore fall. The idea of being blameless means not intending to hurt or harm another person spiritually. You're not getting in someone else's way in their spiritual life. A blameless life is a life that was unoffensive or a life that didn't want to be unnecessarily offensive. Someone who desired and was working towards the spiritual growth of other people. A life desiring that other people would see Christ's love when they look at them and not see hypocrisy, not see double-mindedness, that you would help as many people as you could to grow in Christ. That's what it means to be blameless. And when you take those two ideas together, I think one commentator said it appropriately. He said, since Christ is coming again, Paul wants these people to make the best choices possible and be the best people possible to make the best choices possible and be the best people possible. Which means, in terms of making and approving what is excellent, making the best decision, that just means making any decision that would honor Christ when he returns. That's the summary of verses 9 and 10. Paul wants believers to have lived and loved as much like Christ as possible by the time Christ returns again. And the reason we have this in the Bible is because that's the lives we need to live. Okay, so that tracks. Live the best life you can possibly live 
the most Christ-honoring life you could possibly live. Is that tracking? Okay. Now let's, let's step back and be human beings for a sec, okay? Does that sound intimidating? Nod your head if that sounds intimidating. Okay, good. We're being human beings. That is an intimidating bar to meet. And I think that makes sense. It is hard to try and pursue a Christian life if that's the bar. It doesn't just sound hard. That bar almost sounds impossible. And yet a lot of the book of Philippians is going to talk about this idea. Paul, like I mentioned in the opening of the sermon, in chapter 1, verse 27, let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Chapter 2, verse 15, be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Philippians chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, and let those of us who are mature think this way. So if you're taking the charge to believe in Christ and to grow in Christ, and you read Philippians... That's going to be intimidating. That's going to seem impossible. I think for a lot of Christians, it feels even more intimidating and even more impossible when you consider what the day of Christ's return is going to be like. Not only are we going to see this amazing picture of the perfect holiness of God when he returns to make everything new, but he's going to see us and he's going to examine our lives. Paul looks at that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where he says, you're going to see all of the good works of my people and they're either going to burn up like chaff or they're going to be proved to be gold. That's a little intimidating. In fact, it's even more intimidating if you listen to Jesus talk about it because in Matthew chapter 25, he says to his disciples, when he return, he's going to separate the sheeps from the goats, which means the people who are his and the people who aren't his. And he's going to look at the people who aren't his, who are called the goats, and he's going to say, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devils and his angels. And then he's going to say after that, that they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Which is his way of saying lots of people are going to say they know Christ, but their lives didn't prove that they really loved Christ. Or else they would have lived like Christ. Christ's return reminds us that Christ cares about how we live, that we take holiness seriously. And again, just back up for a sec and be a human being. Does that sound intimidating? That should sound intimidating. I know all of our parents want the best for us, but it's another thing when you hear God demands the best from us. That's intimidating. And what's really interesting is when you listen to a lot of people, immediately this is where sermons and commentators and books take two different directions. And one direction a lot of people take is we got to smarten up. We got to start going. We got to start reading our Bible more. We got to start reaching out to people more. We got to start investing in missions more. Maybe we got to start thinking about being a missionary. We got to go for it. And, and that's a good thing. You should be motivated. One of the big problems here is that no matter what you do, there's going to be that piece of you 
that understands the depth of your sin, that knows you still won't measure up. There's still going to be a big sack of decisions that you regret, a big pile of sin that you've repented of, but its record is still there in your mind. That mess of decision-making that really affected your conscience, but you did it anyway. All of our lives are going to have that. And the question is, why is Christ calling us to such a high standard when he knows how sinful we are, even when we're in Christ? And this is, this is where it takes a turn, in a good way. Because remember what Paul said in verse 6. He said, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The day of Christ is supposed to motivate you to grow in godliness. But not because the day of Christ is supposed to scare you into godliness. That's not why we have this. And it's also not why Paul presents us a plan for growth in a prayer. Because what's a prayer? A prayer is asking God for help. And the reason this is being presented to us is because Paul knows that if we're going to grow in this way, we've got to ask God. And we can ask God because God has promised this. This is the third point where the whole point of this is all going in verse 11, which Paul explains, how can you be sure that you'll grow? How can you be sure? Verse 11, that you would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This idea, the fruit of righteousness, it's just another way to talk about change. And it refers to all sorts of good works and good actions that come out of a righteous heart. But the form of the verb is different. The form of the verb isn't do something. It's something that already happened in the past, and then it's having continual results. It's still doing something. Which means even though it's talking about change, it's not necessarily talking about you changing because you want to change. It's talking about a change that's happened and will continue to happen because God promised that it'll happen. Paul doesn't say, fill up yourselves. He says, you are filled. He doesn't say, be fruitful for Jesus Christ. He says, you are filled with the fruit through Jesus Christ. When you got saved, God the Father already sees you as perfect. One way we talk about this is righteousness has been credited to you, which means even though you are a sinner, you have sinned, you are sinning, you will sin. Christ was not only punished for your sin, but his perfect life is considered yours. So when the Father looks at your life, he sees the perfect life of Christ instead. That's why he can be just and justifier. He can be just to do what is right by the law, and then he can allow you to enter heaven even though you've broken the law. Because your perfect life is looking like Christ. Righteousness credited to you. It is considered yours. But this is the point that Paul is making. The same righteousness that's credited to you will result in growing righteousness in you. 
that righteousness Christ has promised to grow more and more because Christ promised it. One man explained it this way. This crop of goodness is not self-generated, nor can it be, because no man is capable of producing this by himself. Their rich harvest of good deeds is in reality the product of Jesus Christ, who is the source of all life and goodness. Paul is not sharing this prayer so he can passive-aggressively tell us to change. That's not why we get this in a prayer. Paul is sharing his prayer so that we would know we can trust that Christ will change us. You can trust that Christ will change you. Christ is promising that he's really going to make us followers that are not fakes. That he's really going to make us followers that he will be proud of when he returns. That when you trust in Christ, you're not only going to just limp across the finish line, but you will really look like Christ, not perfectly, but much more that day than you look today. That's a promise. That's why we're hearing about change from a prayer, because you need to see where change starts. Before you start trying to fix yourself, you need to know that Christ has promised to fix you now and more and more all the way until he comes again. I was thinking of um, this idea of a person who does ice sculpting. Have you guys ever seen an ice sculptor before? You know, they take this big block of ice, and then they're like, I'm going to make that a swan. And you're like, awesome. And then you just imagine, like, if you're just looking at just the block of ice and you've never seen this guy before, it's like, okay, we're going to get a neck, and then we're going to get, like, you know, two weird triangles that just, like, come out like this, and then he's just going to make it sharp at the end. There's a swan. And it doesn't turn out like that. It's, like, chiseled perfectly, or they get a chainsaw, just, and they just do random stuff. And all of a sudden, you see, like, the most beautiful, majestic picture of a swan you've ever seen, incredibly detailed, and you're like, how on earth did that happen? That was, like, nothing, and now it's, like, Amazing. That's like Paul's picture of what Christ is going to do to you. Christ has promised that even though we look like nothing right now, maybe we even look less than nothing right now, when he comes again, we will be a more beautiful picture of the gospel than we could have imagined if we now looked into the future. That's the idea. And it's amazing to see how personal this is because throughout the New Testament, if you're talking about sanctification, if you're talking about growth in Christ, usually the member of the Trinity that is described is the Holy Spirit. But we don't actually have that here. He says you're filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through who? Jesus Christ. Christ himself who died for you. He is personally involved in growing you too. He didn't just die for you. He's promised to continue to change you, to look more like him. Not you, him. He did it, not you. And the reason this is so important is because I know so many of you guys are trying to figure out if you're Christians or not. You're trying to look at your life and try and figure out, am I actually a person who believes the gospel? 
And I think sometimes the more I talk to you guys, if I'm being completely honest, you're looking way too much at yourself, way too much, or you're looking way too much at all the other students around you. And that's not how you figure out if you're a Christian. It's true that a Christian does change and they don't grow, grow in righteousness and their desires do change, but it's not because you just decided to wake up one day and figure out what it looks like to be Christ-like. It's because you already realize what Christ did for you and you're resting in the promise that he's still doing something in you. And the point that Paul is even making here is before he talks about how you need to grow, he's explaining where you need to start, which is not looking at you. It's looking at Christ and resting in his promise before you skip it and try to look like him without his help. That's what Paul is saying. I was listening just the last couple of days uh, to a testimony of a really famous rock star. I won't say his name because I'm not 100% sure um, where he's at, but um, I knew him from 80s and 90s, which I was not born yet, um, just in case you were wondering. Um, but he was really popular in the 80s and 90s, one of the most famous rock stars of all time. But he was known for being very dark and very demonic. Um, he, like, killed animals on stage and stuff. Really, even by worldly standards, a lot, you know, did gross stuff, very scary, almost occultic. And I heard him share about being a Christian now. And I actually texted a couple people. I'm like, this guy? You think? And actually, most people I texted, they just, like, laughed. Like, I was like, you think this guy's a Christian? They're like, ha, 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 ha. Like, literally ridiculous to think of it. And then you just listen to his testimony. And there's a pastor interviewing, and he, he asked this guy, um, how do you think you become a Christian? Where do you think, when was the time you accepted Christ? And one of the things he said in reply is, he's like, I don't think we accept Christ. I think we accept the fact that he accepted us. You see the difference? It's not that I accepted Christ. It's that I accept the fact that Christ accepted me. And I can't see that guy's heart, and I can't observe everything in that guy's life, which looks good, the amount of things he's talking about that are different in his life. But there's one thing he's pointing at that's totally true, which is no matter what he did, the most dramatic thing that changed in his life was not that his life necessarily changed. That was amazing. But what was amazing is that before his life changed, Christ loved him and accepted him. That's the gospel. And you're never going to be a person who represents the gospel, who looks like God, if you skip the gospel. That's Paul's point here. Christ told us that salvation is promised for those who come to him. And the promise of salvation comes with the promise of sanctification. It's a package deal. Christ is telling us change is not only possible, it is promised. And that even though when Christ returns, we are going to be changed perfectly, we're also being changed progressively in the present, right now. But here's the thing. You need to look at Christ to provide it. You have to look at Christ to provide that. Here are two very simple ways that if you want to understand this message, here are two ways you can apply this message, all right? Here's the first way. 
embrace the gospel more deeply instead of sharing the gospel more often. Embrace the gospel more deeply instead of sharing the gospel more often. Now, I'm not saying don't share the gospel. I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying only share the gospel on days where you really feel amazing about it. You just feel so zealous. And if you're ever depressed, don't share the gospel that day. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you're never going to be motivated to share the news of the gospel until you've truly appreciated that that gospel is also your gospel. That the eternal life you're sharing with others has actually been given to you and you understand how amazing that is. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Christ has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Every single part of that verse is like amazing. If you're a Christian, how could Christ find something in me to take me from the kingdom of darkness and into his perfect kingdom when I'm so imperfect? Well, he didn't find anything in me. It's because he forgave my sins. I should be damned forever. And instead, I get to live in Christ's love forever because of the perfect life he lived and the punishment he took for me when he died and the fact that he proved it when he rose again and promised the same resurrection for me. Sharing the message of heaven is one thing. But before you ever think that you need to prove your Christianity by sharing the message with a hundred people, you need to first understand what it means to taste heaven. What it means to have a desire that's so different from the desires you used to have. You need to understand that. You need to understand that living a life in Christ and living for his world and understanding the joy of that is essential to share it well, to share it with assurance and confidence. I like the way one writer says this. He says, a conviction about God's truth, the courage to make it known in public and to live it in private, and the fortitude to do this day in and day out are born in the understanding of God's otherness. Only those who are countercultural by way of being otherworldly have what modern culture most needs to hear. And what they need to hear, he says, is a word from God that can cut through the deceits of this world and reach the hearts that lie within. When you know how radically different a life in Christ is, and you're confident that that radical transformation can happen if you accept Christ, instead of trusting your own ability to transform yourself, that's when you really become someone who shares the message. First, you got to embrace the message. And here's the second thing. Here's the second way that you can apply this. Pray more dependently instead of praying more often. Pray more dependently instead of praying most often. It's like the most popular uh, youth prayer request ever. Pray that I'd pray more. Pray that I'd pray more. Not, that's not a bad thing. It's good to pray more. But it's also good to remember that in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus said that the Pharisees think they're godly because they heaped up empty phrases in many words. They wanted to prove their godliness by having really long, elaborate prayers. And Christ is saying that's not what makes a good prayer life. 
A real prayer life isn't about how long you pray, but the quality of your prayer. And the quality of your prayer is determined by the attitude of your heart. I don't care what you pray for. Maybe you're praying to be saved. Maybe you're praying that a test would go well. But ask yourself the question, are you praying like someone confident that Christ might actually answer that prayer? Or do you pray like someone who tries to put God to the test? Are you praying like someone who's praying a lot so one day they can cash in all their prayer box and say, God, please grant me this. I deserve it. Is that the way you pray? Or do you pray as a person who still marvels at the fact that because of Christ, God hears you? And because of Christ, God loves you? And because of Christ, he's providing you everything that you need. Is that the way you pray? Because if you pray like that, you're actually praying. Even if you pray for a minute. Praying like that for a minute is way better than praying overconfidently and arrogantly for years of your life. I heard a really interesting story the other day, and we'll, we'll end with this. Um, there was a man who grew up in Britain, and then he spent a lot of his life in another country, and he got to know a lot of um, people in that country very well. And it was in a desert uh, area, desert country. And one day, he decided to take a lot of those guys, and he brought them to Paris. And he showed them around all over the place. He showed them the Eiffel Tower. He showed them the Louvre. He showed them all sorts of amazing places. And they were amazed, like, wow, that's really amazing. But what amazed them most was the faucet in their bathroom. You know, the, the thing you turn and water comes out? That's what amazed them the most because they're like, whoa, we live in the desert. And then you turn this thing and it's like infinity water. That's insane. They love that. They're actually so amazed by that that the last day that they were in Paris, when this guy came in to collect all of them from the hotel room, they had a wrench and they were trying to take off the faucet. They're trying to take it home. And he's like, what are you doing? He's like, well, we take this home. We got infinity water. We got infinity water in the desert. That'd be amazing. And this guy had to, to sit down and tell him, he's like, I'm so sorry to tell you that won't do anything. If you bring that faucet, you just got a piece of metal doing nothing. The reason it works is because of this thing called plumbing. There's this big source of water that's coming up, providing stuff. It's getting all this water from the Alps. It's coming down and coming in and coming out and going out again. The whole point is he's saying the mechanism means nothing. It's, it's connection to the source that matters. And this is why this matters for the Christian life. Paul is explaining if you want to grow, then you can't look at you because you're just the mechanism. The only way you will grow in godliness is by looking at the source and depending on the source. And the source has promised not only to provide all of the source of growth that you need, but to basically do it infinity, to provide more growth than you could possibly imagine, and all you need to do is ask. And that's why Paul ends the prayer with verse 11, to the glory and praise of God. He's explaining that your growth, your joy, and your growth in Christ-likeness, that glorifies God which, as you should know, is the purpose of existence, is to glorify God. And God is determined that he would be glorified 
then he helps you look like him. And this is the question. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? Do you want to go out there and prove that you're a Christian by trying to do more good things? Or do you want to submit to Christ and say, I can never do enough to earn a salvation, and that's why Christ died for me. And that same Jesus who died for me is the same Jesus who promises growth for me.